0: time. I'm your host, Nick Wingo. And in this podcast, I take the experiences I've had and I in turn use those to build grit. I use those experiences to understand myself better and also understand situations in life better. And today I have a guest on my podcast. I'd like to introduce you to her. This is Danny Larson. How's it going today, Danny?
1: It's good. It's good. How are you?
0: Really good. Thank you. Super excited to have this conversation with you. You're a nurse, been a nurse for quite some time, is my understanding. And You work uh, in a children's hospital in Minnesota. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I've been a nurse for about 10 years. Um, I did a bunch of different areas. I started in a nursing home, went to um, an adult neuro unit, um, and then I was a critical care float for a few years or uh, float for three years and did a bunch of different units with that. And I um the ICU probably about four years ago. And that's where it stayed.
0: Okay, awesome, awesome. And so I have uh, quite a few friends who are nurses. And so the reason I wanted to just have a conversation with you is, number one, your story really intrigued me. Uh, you recently released your story on Facebook, and it really kind of resonated with me. And number two, it's it's really good to get perspective from uh, a nurse because. My perspective is that, you know, out in the field, craziness, complete chaos, Uh, and then the nurse's perspective is, you know, you have that long-term care, so you have these patients that you're seeing for quite some time, whereas my, my interactions with patients are just, you know, short duration, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, so it's really good to just get perspective from somebody who is seeing patients for a longer period of time, I feel like nurses often get more attached to patients. Would you Would you agree with that? Do you end up being attached to your patients?
1: Oh, absolutely. In my current unit, we can have patients pretty much up to the age of like seven to eight months. And I, yeah, I get super attached to my patients. I think it's very easy, very, very easy to love my patients because they're infants and children. And that's just, I mean, they're very innocent and it's, easy to get attached to them. And then I tend to get very, very attached to the families as well. So for sure.
0: Yeah, that's
1: (laughs) definitely a thing.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to be in a position where you're with these patients and it's, it's hard to not get attached. Would you agree? I mean, how do you not get attached to somebody who you're seeing on a daily basis uh, and building a relationship with?
1: Well, and for sure. And I feel like we see these families on either the best or worst days of their lives. You know, we see them through some of the toughest things and then we see them through these huge, just huge peaks and valleys where it's your child. And I think those emotions can get so high. And then when you're directly in that and you are a support person, I think same. It's it's extremely hard to not get very attached to, to the families and to their stories and just really kind of see yourself in that as well. Because it it tends to reflect your own life a lot, I think.
0: Yeah, you know, for me, kids, man, kids are so hard. And just to, to give you a little background of myself is, I, I've I've been unfortunate to have encountered several several kids in the in the field. Um, you know, there is nothing like the blood hurdling scream of a mother when she hands you a dead child. Uh, it. Yeah. it is super impactful. And it is the scream of a mother, the raw emotion, the, the feelings that they are feeling is, is very difficult to emotionally hold. And have you experienced that in children's, the, the raw emotion of the parents? just the the difficulties that they go through have you experienced some of that
1: oh definitely i mean i've i feel like i've actually been pretty fortunate to not encounter that many losses but the ones that i have had definitely stick with me yeah it's just it's one of those situations where i feel like then i've definitely gone home and hugged my children a little bit tighter yeah i mean kids are kids are incredibly resilient and i feel like in the in the icu setting we see kids pull through stuff that like an adult would not pull through. We see kids pull through when the odds are completely against them. So I think it makes, it makes a lot of it way more rewarding, but the losses are definitely, they definitely stay with you. Like I remember every, every child that I've ever taken care of that has passed away, you know, and they've left, they've always left some kind of imprint on my heart and it's, Interesting, too, because that's not one of the things that they tell you when you are preparing to become a nurse. They don't tell you that, you know, the losses are going to stick with you the way that they do, and that they'll make such a profound impact on you in the way that they do also. So that's definitely a learning opportunity there. I
0: agree. I agree so much. I can I can reflect back to several occurrences. One that comes to mind specifically for me is that we responded to a traffic accident, and we arrived on scene. There was this car that was about 150 feet off the road. It was on all four wheels. Didn't look like that terrible an accident. We rolled up there in the back seat. Uh, There was a young female passenger that was in teenage years, and she had. She had succumbed to her injuries. Uh, the reason being because she had not worn her seatbelt. And it was a car full of teenage kids. And they were just leaving some type of high school event. And then the parents were right behind them about 10 to 15 minutes. And so when we got on scene, we find this, this, this kiddo. And then I, re- I remember so vividly, dad came up and dad went and held daughter and that moment, uh, it just, it, it still is just fried in my, my mind of seeing that moment, that raw emotion of a father and his loss with his daughter. And and I, it was so impactful. And to this day, I mean, that was years ago now, probably about 12 years ago. And I can see her face. I can see dad's face. I can remember like every a bit of that scene. Yeah because it was just such raw, hard emotion, you know, and kids, they just, they're different. Kids are different when it comes to EMS and the hospital. It's just a different thing to have to deal with. And I know for me, that has been a lot of me building my grit is, you know, just seeing that raw emotion and seeing those interactions and having to figure out how to deal with that how to deal with that raw emotion. What are some things that, you, that you've you done that, to deal with your raw emotion of those or, or or have you, or are you a person like me where I used to be where I would just stuff it down?
1: Yeah, so I'm a talker. I mean, I think one thing I've come to realize with myself over the years, I always thought that I was an adrenaline junkie and I'm actually not, I'm really not. And so when when stressful things happen in an ICU setting, I actually tend to, kind of like analyze them to death after the, after the situation actually occurs, like what could I have done better? What could I have noticed sooner? Like what could I just like tearing situations apart? And I, I'm definitely an external processor. Like if there were teachable opportunities um, where the opportunities for learning are stressful situations, like definitely I've noticed impact me after that shift and impact my care going forward. So I think if I don't debrief with people, it tends to linger with me and make me, I guess, second guess my own skills. So in an effort to not do that and to remain, I think, confident as a nurse, I really find myself talking talking to my coworkers, talking to, you know, we work directly with um, neonatal nurse practitioners, talking to our neonatologists. I I mean, because it's one of those things where I can't really talk to my husband about that because he can nod and listen, but ultimately it doesn't make sense to him. So I think talking to my other nurse friends and my coworkers has always been a really big coping skill for me and helped me, you know, learn and grow in nursing and continue to move forward with those things.
0: And do you you feel stronger from that? Do you feel stronger from those moments?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was actually just kind of reflecting on growth today. And I'm like, it's always really scary when you're learning in an ICU setting, because it means that something is it pretty much means that something's going wrong. It means that a patient is decompensating or it means that something heavy is going on. And I think growth in those situations can be really scary. And I think it can be very humbling because ultimately you don't know what you don't know. And there's a first time for everything. There's a first time that a patient codes. There's a first time that a patient passes away. There's a first time for all of that. And it always feels very, very humbling where you wish you knew what you know now, but ultimately you can't skip that step because that's the step toward growth.
0: Right. So true. And I think that this is a good way to transition the conversation into that's how we grow, that's how we build grit. So we use these experiences, we use these things that have happened. You know, I hate saying things have happened to us because I I don't I don't like that. Things have just happened. You know, it's not I, I hate the victim mentality. And I think often people get caught in the victim mentality, like, It is so easy as a medical provider to be a victim of your situation, your circumstance. And that's just not, if you live in that area, if you live in that constantly as a medical provider, your life is going to be miserable. Because if we carry this weight with us everywhere we go, and I'm sure you could agree with this, is that it wrecks everything. Because I know in the past, I've had moments where I've carried the weight of a kiddo that has died. I've carried the weight of Whatever the circumstance I had, I carried that and it, it just spilled over into everything in my life. And so you have to build grit. You have to find a way to deal with that. And it sounds like you can't do it with your spouse. And I, I can appreciate that because my wife doesn't understand my situation. She doesn't understand that. Now, I do say like, hey, does, I've had a rough day, like, you know, and I'll say this is what happened. And right. you know she just appreciates that and goes, I completely, un- I empathize with you and sympathize for you. She can't empathize for, with me, but she can sympathize and say, Hey, I appreciate that. Right. Um, and so what I want to talk about is just a little bit about your story because it really, your story just really lit up some things in my mind. And I was just really touched by you just opening up and this podcast, the whole reason behind it is to open up and to talk about the stuff that's hard to talk about. This is why I wanted to have this conversation with you is because you opened up and you were vulnerable and it is not easy to be vulnerable.
1: Right. Absolutely.
0: It is is so difficult to be vulnerable, especially uh, in this time right now where everybody wants to point a finger at everybody else. And again, it's that whole victim. We all, lots of people have the victim mentality and I just want to get out of that completely. So why don't you just paraphrase your your story, where you came from, how you ended up into nursing
1: well i I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of facets. the ones that I would say kind of like put me into going into the nursing field um going way back. um i my parents divorced when I was about thirteen, and they had had kind of like an on again not on again off again, but you know, a really tumultuous relationship, I guess. And when I first went to college, I was actually going to go for theater. And then I dabbled in exercise sports science and community health. And my dad actually wound up having his second heart attack. He had one when I was 15, which was more severe than I knew. And at the time, we did not have a good relationship. We, well, we never had a great relationship. But He had a heart attack when I was 15, and then he had another one when I was 20. And the heart attack that he had when I was 20, he was down, I don't actually know how long, and I don't know that anyone started CPR, but he was brought in pretty much like in a a vegetative state. And when I went to see him, it was just the overwhelm of an adult ICU. I mean, he was on pretty much every every machine he was i think he was on like the therapeutic hyperthermia hypothermia and essentially like we waited the 72 hours to see if there was any brain activity and there was not and i i had fantastic support like i really really did my aunt was is a nurse she's phenomenal his whole family was there we knew that it would not be i guess congruent with his wishes to continue in that state But when your parents are divorced and you're an only child and you're above the age of 18, the power of attorney defaults to the next of kin if you don't have a living will. So definitely a plug for having a living will. And so that was me. And we had, like I said, a very tumultuous relationship. Actually, that day we had been having an email exchange talking about whether or not he was going to try and visit. And I had still harbored a ton of anger just because he had, when he and my mom had split, he had just basically skipped the country. Like he literally went to Australia and he was like, I don't know if I'm coming back. And so I had all of this anger and resentment and our relationship had never really improved beyond that point. And so we had had an email exchange that morning and I was basically like, I don't know if I have time for you. And he had had his heart attack like a few minutes after that. I mean, the timestamp of that email, it's shortly before he had his heart attack. And so the guilt that came with that was just tremendous. And then the guilt of then, you know, making the decision, not alone, but making the decision to take him off of light support really just put me in this state where I was like, the mantra that I told myself was that I was responsible for his death, that I killed my father, which obviously from an outside perspective, that's completely irrational. But at the time, that's where I was. And there were a lot of other factors that were going on at that same time that led to me not having a healthy mindset. But moving forward beyond that, I mean, when I think of monumental life events, that's definitely probably one of the most character-forming events for me because it was a catalyst for me going into treatment. It was a catalyst for me dealing with some mental health. It was ultimately when I circled back and returned to school in a few years, it was a catalyst for me going into nursing, knowing that the people that had been there for me at that time were so pivotal and so supportive. Like, I don't remember exactly his bedside nurses, but I remember their impact on me and wanting to be able to turn that loss and that experience into something positive. And I think that's where, when we do have losses in in our setting, I feel like at least I can make the time that someone has be quality and like try and make The worst day of someone else's life a little bit better. So it really, it was really one of those character forming, like huge life events that I mean, that everything centered around because it was a catalyst for so many other things. And it took a lot of years. I mean, it took a lot of years of therapy to kind of like start to retrain my brain and forgive and understand that people are imperfect. And as a 35 year old, you know, I would have understood everything that happened between my parents significantly better than I understood it as a 20 year old. And just giving myself grace for not knowing what I didn't know at that time.
0: Right. You and know? I want to just interject something here is you said something that really kind of brought something up in my mind as you said that it was an irrational way to think. And I just want to throw this out there is too often people get caught up in saying that I am thinking irrationally. And where I want to challenge that is I just want to say it's not necessarily irrational from the space that you're currently in. And so if we started to look at people, everyone in the space that they're living in, I think that one of the problems we have is a, just as, as a people in general, is that we look at people and we judge people based on The space that we're in rather than the space that they're in. And so the space that you were in was not irrational because that was the space that you were in and you knew no differently and you only knew how to think within that space, right? And so often people get caught up in that, hey, if I only knew then what I know now, well, guess what? You wouldn't know what you know now if you didn't have what happened to you happen to you, right? Yeah. So this is true. This is one of those great moments, I feel like, where I can kind of interject and say, hey, that's how grit is built. And so often, I just want to, if you guys are listening to this right now, if you're in a circumstance that is difficult, it is okay that you're in that circumstance because you, here's the thing, is you can learn from every circumstance if you choose to. And what Danny is saying here is that she has learned from her circumstance and she has chosen to become a better person and stronger because of that. Now it is easy and it could have been the easy for, road for you to go into a tailspin and quit on life and not get better and not improve, right?
1: Well, I did that first. <laughs> I well, mean, like I definitely did the tailspin thing first before coming out the other side, but absolutely. <laughs>
0: but fair, but all that other stuff led up to where you are right now.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Right? Would you
0: be who you are right now if it wasn't for all those other things to happen?
1: Oh, for sure not. No, definitely not.
0: So tell me a little bit more about the tailspin.
1: Well, I had actually, and I this was part of this story that I had shared too, but I had actually struggled with an eating disorder probably, I mean, for a huge portion of my life. Most, I would say most severely in high school and college. But like, even as a kid, I remember just emotions being around food and having like a bit of an emotional eating tendency and having kind of like a poor relationship with food from a very young age. And when my parents divorced, it definitely kind of escalated some. And I struggled with bulimia pretty much all the way through high school. And I thought I was doing a really good job of hiding it. I remained really high functioning. I didn't think that anybody knew when in reality, pretty much everybody knew And so then when I went off to college, it got a little bit worse. I struggled kind of with that, you know, restrictive mindset and then the cycle of bulimia and all of that. But then when my dad died, I really launched into the, you know, I, I don't deserve to be here. And fortunately, like that, that first time I checked myself into treatment at Rogers Memorial. Um, And I was there, I was an inpatient for about a month. I was in residential for about two months. Um, I did some partial outpatient hospitalization. And then I tried to go back to college and begin. It would have been, I think, my junior year of college. And I got the sickest that I had ever been. Like I was trying so hard to be better, but I just couldn't shake some of those, some of those habits, some of that mindset. It was going back to the same environment which we know a lot about like changing a habit. If you go back to the same environment, the likelihood that you'll go back to the same behaviors is extremely high.
0: Absolutely. So I
1: got, yeah, I got the sickest that I had ever been. And I wound up being asked to leave UWL just because I was a health risk. And I kind of just like a few more months of like, I I went to stay with a friend. And then I eventually went back into treatment at Rogers for a second time. And that time I was there for probably a cumulative of, it must've been close to six months between inpatient and residential treatment. The relationship that I had been in had ended. And the that next few years, like post-treatment and like before before my thirties were just a mess. Like I I was drinking, I was trying to change my behavior, but I didn't really know how to do that. I had dropped out of college. I had a lot of guilt around that. I felt like ultimately, it just kind of felt like a failure because I saw all these people that were succeeding at their life. And here, all I had to show was a few broken years of college and two stints in treatment and a lot of therapy. And I didn't, feel good about myself or my life trajectory at all. And it ultimately came to a point where I just, I was kind of like ready to give up on all of it, ready to give up on life. I was just so tired of fighting back from an eating disorder, from the mental health issues that I had, from I mean, I've got like a pretty, pretty wonderful case of anxiety, just (laughs) baseline. And I was so tired of it. I just, I didn't feel like there was anywhere that I had to go. And so I did wind up overdosing and wound up back in the hospital again and inpatient. And at that point, I felt like everyone had given up on me. Like my mom didn't. I know that. I know my family didn't, but you get to a point as... I mean, even as like an addict, where you have maximized everyone's resources and everyone's mental energy, and you just feel like everyone is done. And one friend that I had stayed with when I was down in Milwaukee doing treatment, and then I had my my now husband, who I had become friends with, that were both people that were like, no, like you, you can still do this. And for whatever reason, I don't know what made that time different, but I really Started to dig my heels in and try and fight back and change everything. Like, I had, I joke about the positive affirmations and like gratitudes because I know that people think they're such a hokey thing, but I literally had like little post it notes of like, I am enough. And these things taped all over my walls. And it didn't feel like that was going to cause any change. But a combination of being stubborn and having good support and feeling like this time I needed to make it count was ultimately the steps that started to make things stick, which still was like a 10-year process. I mean, that was 10 years ago and it still feels like the recovery process is ever changing every day. Like you're never, I I consider myself recovered, but at the same time, that's not a black and white thing. Like I use that word, but at the same time, I know that the recovery process continues to look different every year of my life.
0: Right. Completely understand. And just a few interesting things that just really popped out to me. You're going to have to excuse me because my brain, like, I got an hour of sleep last night. (laughs) My brain is is overwhelmed. But I want to hone into the moment when you overdosed. And I, I want you to think back to that moment. And what were the biggest factors? What were you thinking? Were you feeling like nobody was there for you? Were you feeling like everybody was mad at you? What was the biggest? Did you feel like there was no hope? Because suicide really is one of those things that I'm really, I really am intrigued by. I've had about three people that surround me that have committed suicide. One that specifically that I worked with for three, for three years straight. and he called me the day before he did it. And so this is something that really, you know, and being in the field, I see suicide so often and I see the people that see the suicide, the family, and they're always devastated. And so, I really am trying to get a grasp and understanding of where you were in that moment.
1: I think it well, and this is this is actually part of the reason that i don't that I don't drink and that I don't use alcohol because I came to learn that when I drank in college, when I drank in my adult life, and obviously not so much now because I will have like a glass of wine, but when I did drink at that time, I would drink to the point of like, trying to numb my feelings, but it would always put me in a bad headspace, and I don't think I had that awareness. So, factor one, I was not in a completely rational, sober headspace. Well, I call um, it
0: depressant, so I completely... Right, experience.
1: right. That's what we we'll right. lean into,
0: and it's the worst thing to do because it depresses you. Oh, almost.
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And it was all, I mean, it was all about... Me And I don't mean that to sound like selfish, but it, it was all about the thoughts that I had, the feelings that I had. Like I said, I felt like I had used up everyone's mental energy and I didn't feel worthy of the time or attention or the resources that people were willing to give me. I didn't feel that I was worthwhile of the love, of the support. Um, of those things from other people, it's this space where I just didn't—I didn't feel like I had a right to take up space in the world, which that obviously played into my eating disorder. I didn't feel like I had a right to take up resources. It was all of this feeling of unworthiness and feeling like I was a burden, and I think that's a common thing that you see with people that commit suicide—is this feeling feeling that they're a burden, that somehow they're unworthy, they're a burden on society, a burden on other people, and that other people would be better off if they didn't have to have the pain. Because obviously, like I'm an only child. My mom raised me, and I put her through a tremendous amount of pain, a tremendous amount of financial resources, and I had a lot of guilt with that because mm-hmm. I know she used like her retirement fund to pay for some of my treatment because that is not cheap. And so just all this guilt piled up. And I mean, that's pretty much what it was, was guilt and a feeling of complete and total unworthiness and being undeserving of other people.
0: I completely understand what you're saying. It it totally makes sense. So you said that your current husband, Dylan, um, and another friend came in and what changed? So what was the difference? Because it sounds like you had some support, but maybe not the right support from the right people. Is that fair to 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 say?
1: Yeah. And that's that's what's interesting because I've always had I've always had good people in my life. I've always had supportive people in my life. And like truly if I try to look at it, I think at some point it became the decision that this was my rock bottom and that the only way was up because there was nothing that different. I had always had fantastic people. I really had, but there was something, because I think there's a lot of talk in mental health about like rock bottom. And how do you know when you've hit rock bottom? And I think at that point I was just like, fuck, I've decided that like, this is my rock bottom. Like this is where, this is where it stops. And I I don't know what made that time different. I really don't. I know that Dylan is probably the most optimistic person I've ever met in my entire life. And there was something very, and I mean, we were we were just friends at this time. We weren't in a relationship. It wasn't anything like that. But he remains one of the most optimistic people that I've ever met. And the fact that he and my good friend, Lindsay, both could see me for the person that I wanted to be and the person that I was capable of being for whatever reason, that made me decide like, this is where I need to start working. And I, I mean, like when I've talked about my recovery, those first couple of years, I'm like, Oh my God, it was a shit show. It was such a hot mess and it was up and down and messy and just horrible. But ultimately it got me to becoming a better person than the person that I wanted to be and getting to a place where I could utilize some of what I've learned to hopefully eventually help other people. Right. But I guess I just decided, you know, like that was where it needed to, that was where it needed to go.
0: And it's interesting the way you talk about it because, you know, we, you've read Atomic Habits. I've read Atomic Habits by James Clear. does a great job of um, explaining a lot of things. If you haven't read the book, it's a really good, good read. And one of the things he talks about is that one degree of change. And so everybody looks for the big moment, the big changing moment, the big turnover, and it's just never there in anything, in anything that we do. Prime example, when you lose weight, it's gradual, right? And so you don't really see the weight that you've lost until you put a before and after picture side by side. And you're like, holy cow, when did that happen? Well, it just happened. Like it it was just a day-to-day change. It was just a mindset change every day. It was a little bit. And it sounds like for you, this whole journey, it was that one degree of change. It was just those little subtle things that you started doing, those little subtle things that you started leaning into that eventually led you to the place that you're at right now.
1: Oh, absolutely. Like if I look back, I'm like, when did I stop? Like, when did I stop binging? When did I stop like restricting? When did I stop? you know, thinking this, when did I switch my thinking to this? I mean, it's really like, I don't know, but somewhere over the course of those years that happened. And it was just continually trying and continually standing up again with every single time that something knocked me down. And
0: that's so important. You know, again, going back to my theme of building grit, when you get knocked down and you get back up, those are the moments when you get up that you get gritty. Like that is how you get to the next level. That's how you level up is when you go, you know what? I have this circumstance. I am not going to fall victim to it any longer because I've been a victim long enough and I am going to step up and I'm going to move forward and I'm going to be better. Every single day that I get up, every single step that I take will be a better step, a stronger step, and I will be a stronger person.
1: Sure. Yep. Absolutely.
0: I love your story. I love the way that, you know, you've gotten to this where you are right now so tell me a little bit about what are the things that you know you talk about uh, you wish that the 35 year old you could go back and tell the 20 year old you hey these are the things that i know now so what are those things what is the what is the things that the danny of today would tell the 20 year old danny what are the things that you've learned what's the the most grit that you've built
1: i think the one thing so I, I always circle back to the topic of mental health because I feel like the things that are the hardest to talk about are the areas that we feel like we're the weakest. And I I know there's a lot of shame around the topic of mental health. There's a ton of shame around the topic of suicide. And like, honestly, when I released my story, I I went into a huge shame spiral. First off, I released it at a really like my timing was poor. I had recorded it a month before, but my timing of when I actually put it out was poor, just given the climate of everything that's going on right now. But I, I think there's a lot of shame around mental health. And I know when I was 20, like, my God, I've dealt with anxiety since I was a kid. Like I had, I know I had anxiety as a kid. And I, when I was 20, I was continually like, I can't take anything for depression. I can't take anything for anxiety. And like, if you take something for it, cool. If you don't, cool, that's fine. But like, for me, I am a better human. I am a better parent. I am a better functioning adult if I take a small dose of medication for depression and anxiety. And that's okay. And I think when I was 20, I viewed that as a weakness and a character flaw. And as a 35-year-old, I'm just like, fuck it. You know, like, if this is what it takes for me to be functioning, this is what I need. I also wish someone had introduced me to like weightlifting when I was much younger, because I think that became a phenomenal coping skill for me and learning to figure out that my body could be strong and that my body was capable of things because I think I had a very disconnected relationship with my body. I was always in theater. I was in dance. I was in a lot of like very image focused things. And I felt like the only way to be socially acceptable was to be smaller. And that was really hard. And especially like raising girls, it's one of those things Again, not that men can't have eating disorders, but we're talking about females right now. Right. Um, I I really didn't want my daughters to grow up with you know that distorted image or feeling like they can't be exactly who they are and be perfect the way they are. So I wish you know I I wish someone had come in and taught me to be strong. I wish someone had told me that it was okay to you know t- take a medication that there wasn't something wrong with me. And that I was just different and perfectly fine the way that I was because I just always felt that there was something wrong with
0: me. Right. And I want to interject something right here because it's really, really resonates with me is that often people get caught up in the don't take medication. And let me just tell you right now, it is scientifically proven that people who have some type of depression or a lot of these, these, these psychological mental problems, your brain is wired differently. It just does. They've done study after study after study that shows that that you're wired differently. And so it is okay to take medication if you need to take medication. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're afraid of medication because you think it's a weakness, like Danny said, it is not a weakness. It may just be the reality that that's what you need to function normally. And that is okay. It is okay for you to be in that space.
1: Yeah. And I think like, I'm, a, I'm just a highly emotionally sensitive person. I've always been that way. I'm extremely sensitive to the emotions and feelings of others, which I think is part of what makes me a really good nurse, a good coach. But at the same time, I have a hard time staying in my lane because I can very easily take on everything that someone else has. And so it's been a real continual learning process of, Learning how to practice self-care and be able to have that empathy without taking on the entire world too, and that's a nursing. That's in every area of my life for sure.
0: Mm. Yeah, you know, the other thing you said it is men- mental health. You know, this is a, a huge reason why I'm doing this podcast is just getting out like, hey, we all have mental crap that we deal with. Like, if you sit here and listen to this podcast and you tell me you don't have some type of something that you've dealt with mentally, you're lying to yourself because we all have emotion. And some of us are better at hiding emotion than others of us. I know I've been really damn good at it before in my life of hiding my emotion. And for me, this podcast, a big part of this is me like showing up and saying, Hey, I've been there. I've had mental problems. I've dealt with a lot of crap. And now I want to talk about it and I want it to be okay to talk about it because in fire service, I started 16 years ago when it was like, Hey, you had something happen. It was like, suck it up, Sally. You signed up for this. Guess what? Now you got to deal with it. And that's just not a good mentality because that's what leads to suicides. You know, in the fire service, there are more suicides for firefighters, EMS, than there are line of duty deaths. Right, so there's about a hundred line of duty deaths in the fire service a year, roughly. Uh, that's generally where we stay. They've just started to track suicide rates in firefighters, and it is significantly higher than line of duty sure. deaths. And we put a lot of focus on line of duty deaths. Hey, how can we avoid these? And we have not put focus on hey, how can we deal with mental health until recently. I would say within the past six years. And right. so I'm really right. trying to lean into that and go hey it is okay to not be okay.
1: Right. Makes total sense. I know. And that's where I think it's extremely humbling to talk about. Like I, even though this has been a long process and a long time and you know, the choices that I make now in my life are very different than the choices that I made, you know, 20, 15, 20, 10 years ago, it's still extremely humbling to talk about because that is my story. And that you know, it, has lasting impact, but at the same time, I'm like, these things need to be talked about because there are people struggling with it. And you know, if that makes one person reach out, if that makes one person be able to have that conversation, I would rather have that kind of like shame hangover than or vulnerability hangover, like Brene Brown calls it. I would rather have that and help one person than stay silent about everything that has gone on.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, part of this podcast, if I touch one person, it is worth every minute of my time because I have lost people to suicide. I have lost people and it weighed heavily on me, weighed very, very heavily on me. And so then this is my chance to give back. This is my chance to say, hey, this is going on and let's recognize it. And let's, you know, together become better as a a whole, you know, in the fire service, the medical field just across the whole gamut of, of this.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Well, I I really appreciate you sharing. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, You know, I, I appreciate you being vulnerable. It is not easy, like you said, to be vulnerable. I kind of want to wrap this up. And I, I just want to leave this last thought is that you just listen to somebody who has been there, been through it. I've struggled with mental health. I've struggled with some of those moments of not feeling worthy, not feeling enough. And so if you've listened to this and it's resonated with you, reach out to somebody and just know it's okay to be in the space that you're in. It is okay to not be okay. It's all right, and there are people that are either have worse situations, the same situation, different situations, Everybody has the space that they're in. And so just recognize that, again, it's okay to not be okay. I really appreciate you just joining me today. Danny. is there anything else you want to add in?
1: No, no, I think that's it. It'll all be all up and forward from here. So
0: (laughs) awesome, good. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, meeting me and just having this really candid conversation and open conversation. This has been another episode of Building Grit. Uh, You can find me on Instagram, at Building Grit. If you guys have anything you want me to cover, any comments, feel free to reach out. Uh, Again, I really appreciate you guys, and have a great day.